The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by comedian and author Jem Roberts to discuss a new collection of British folk tales, which has been many years in the making. Tales of Britain is a road atlas of ancient British stories, which have been retold for the 21st century complete with tourist guides to help you to visit the locations in which the tales are set. Each of the 77 stories in the book, from well-known characters such as Robin Hood and King Arthur, to others who deserve more limelight, like Molly Whuppie and Jack O'Kent, have developed through performance to find a new retelling to suit a modern audience. The stories are thematically very different, but all have been retold with a sense of fun, and, more importantly, by restoring the true root of the tale. It has been a long journey to reach this stage, but along the way the project has picked up a strong level of support, from those in the public spotlight such as Neil Gaiman, Sir Tony Robinson and Brian Blessed, to those working with similar material, such as Folklore Thursday and here on the Folklore Podcast. Jem joined me via Skype to discuss this project. Now, due to technical problems which were not apparent until after the interview, the first section of the interview has had to be used from the secondary backup recording, which I always make alongside the primary equipment that I use. The eagle-eared among you may notice a slight difference in the normal quality of recording for the first few minutes, but it is hopefully not too jarring as to spoil your enjoyment of the episode. Hello, Jem, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hello, Mark, and Brother Bernard is here somewhere as well in the Skypey ether. Don't worry, he's here. Excellent. We 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 shall we shall talk uh, talk with him or about him in due course. I think. <laughs> uh, before we do though, let's talk a little bit about you, if that's okay. And um, before we uh, get going, 
uh, on the book. Can you just uh, tell people a little bit about um, your background as a writer and the kind of writing and research that you do? Well, I can I can truncate the story blessedly because it's a very long one. But uh, I first got money for putting words on printed pages when I was about 13 or 14. I'm from Ludlow on the Welsh border where video game magazines were born. So for the first 20 odd years of my career, I was uh, writing video game magazines. And uh, at the same time, I'm a performing comedian and a comedy spod. And as a comedy uh, uh, obsessive, uh, Barry Cryer basically uh, put in a word for me to write the official I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue book, which was my first book, which came out in, ooh, when was that? 2009. So it's 10 years I've been doing this now. And uh, in addition to that, I did the uh, the True History of the Black Adder, the official Black Adder book, which was my second. And then the third was the official Douglas Adams biography, The Frood. And just last September, uh, my uh, fourth comedy history book, Soupy Twists, came out from Unbound, the same publishers as Tales of Britain. Um, I've done all sorts of things otherwise in my career as well, in terms of storytelling. I mean, all of my books, I could go on far too long about this, but all of my, those books I just mentioned, Mark, were ultimately storytelling. You know, the Fry and Laurie story, it's just my main characters are Stephen and Hugh, and uh, I find an interesting new way to relate the story of their partnership and their friendship. And um, that, in addition to uh, much younger in my career, I used to sort of write things for, for Disney comics and stuff like that, which is I, I felt slightly ambivalent about because how can you write, for instance, as I have, you know, a new Alice in Wonderland story. Erzatz Lewis Carroll is a very dangerous thing to attempt. But it was in terms of writing short stories, it was quite a good uh, education, really. But uh, this, obviously, Tales of Britain is a massive departure from everything that I just mentioned, Mark. <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're saying about reworking um, stories there. And, and yes, it, it's, it's a frightening prospect, I guess, in a way, to to rewrite something uh, such as Lewis Carroll or to, or to add to the official canon, if you will. Um, it's, it's fine, yeah. to, you know, it, it's different, isn't it, to write a pastiche or to write a fanfic version of something like that. But to actually add to the canon uh, is a little bit um, terrifying for some authors, I guess. So how did you move from biographies and from kind of official um stories of, of these people or these shows to a collection like tales of britain well this is the thing uh, the book is out now mark but it's actually been going on for 15 years now which predates the uh, the i'm sorry i haven't a clue bible my very first book uh, i never really intended to be a comedy historian proud though i am of it and i'm writing a new one right now it's, that's what i do but um I was, as I say, performing comedy and also a journalist at the same time. So it was where those two meet. But I was writing, I mean, as you know, Tales of Britain isn't a children's book. It's not from a children's publisher to put in the children's section. But it is totally inclusive, hopefully, and it is available for people of every age to dip into. But uh, that said, I uh, decided, <laughs> this is quite amusing, I, I decided, I graduated from Aberystwyth University in the year 2000 and I remember that at the start of that year before I graduated 
I just had this sudden premonition, even though I was performing comedy even then, I decided I wanted to write children's stories. I just suddenly, this story came to me and I started writing an, an original book. And this was maybe six months before I and most people had ever heard of Harry Potter. And children's publishing was just an entirely different world at the turn of the millennium. And so I wrote many uh, uh, little sort of short stories. I wrote fables and I was told by uh, one of the country's top children's publishers is, we don't want fables. Nobody wants fables. If it's got an animal and a message in it, then we're not interested. <laughs> and just, oh, I've just had a lot of uh, unpleasant experiences with the children's publishing world these days. Uh, not being Kylie Minogue and so on. Oh, what a terribly bitter thing to say. <laughs> anyway, um, the point is, I was writing my own children's stories, and then I suddenly became an author uh, writing uh, non-fiction, comedy non-fiction and biography. And the only reason to really get to the true genesis of Tales of Britain, which is kind of answers a lot of questions that you might ha have yet to ask me, uh, but really the whole point of Tales of Britain came about because in 2004, I became an uncle for the very first time. And I, as I say, I'm from Ludlow, which is about 10 miles from the Welsh border. It used to be the capital of Wales, in fact. And um, I've got two older brothers who each started having boys. And suddenly all these nephews came along. And when my first nephew came along, his dad had moved up to Yorkshire uh, in Wakefield is where they live. And my other brother moved down to Poole in Dorset. And I just thought it would be nice for my nephews to have a little story um, to remind them of the Shropshire roots of their, you know, the paternal side of their family. And so I found this wonderful website called Shropshire Myths, uh, run by a guy called Des Quarrel, and that kind of really ignited uh, an extra. I mean, I've always loved folk tales all my life, but it kind of was a kind of a fresh look at these things. Really, really simply, very, very short basic writing uh, of just telling the story as basically as possible and so I kind of the first one I ever did was Robin's Arrow which is a Ludlow Robin Hood legend which is a very strange one about the time that he missed his mark when they were building St Lawrence's Church and I wrote that for my first nephew Nathaniel and I then I suddenly discovered I was going to have another nephew and I thought well what I'll do is I'll just go out and buy a great big book of British folk tales and then in the future um, because I, I mean, I signed my death warrant anyway, because friends started to have kids as well. And I got into this thing of making these books with illustrations and everything, which took about 50 man hours when I still had a job and a comedy career and everything else to try and keep going. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I thought, I'd, well, I'll just pop to the shop and I'll buy, I thought there'd be a choice of, you know, four or five different collections of British folk stories. Um, and also, as I say, I won't get too deep into this, but it is quite an important part of this. Coming from the border, uh, the border of uh, Shropshire and Wales, as I am, if I was born 10 miles west, I would be expected to be Welsh and to consider myself a Welshman and speak like this. And if I was born 10 miles east, I'd be a Brummie in a black country and I'd be expected to speak like this mark. And I don't do either of those things. And it just makes you realise if you're on a border, people go to extremes. They're either extremely nationalistic for their, their bordered land or they're exactly the opposite, as I am, in just not recognising borders. Um, because ultimately, these are just lines that were drawn on a map uh, by some rich bloke um, a few centuries ago, really. Absolutely. And I just and, see and... It with this small little, little blob of land. 
up in Western Europe, and so I've always identified as British. So I wanted to buy a British folktale book, and I could not find one anywhere. And they're contested as well, aren't they? That's that's another issue with things like borders. They're a movable feast, you know. Some mm. what 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 is in one county at some point might be in another county later on. So you have to take into account, I guess, as well that stories can shift in that way because they take on the um, the background of that particular area, uh, which may change later on. Well, exactly. I mean, a lot of these stories, as you know, appear all over in different places in different forms. And it was part of the kind of editorialising process for me to sort of choose the most perfect place uh, to actually put them. Um, but, I, you know, as I said, I just always, I've always thought it's a bit silly, really, because I, I, I am proud in a strange kind of way. I mean, to me, I mean, I, I talk a bit about this in my Blackadder book, for what it's worth, but how uncool it is to have patriotic thoughts. But um, I, the thing is, as Ben Elton said to me, um, it's not about thinking that you are the best country in the world at all. You know, every, it's only sane to recognise that every country has its pluses and its minuses. And uh, it's just about loving where you come from in the same way that you love your family. So it depends. You know, people can just uh, place themselves however they will. They may love their family. They may love their streets. They may love their town. They may love their county. And if they want to then say, I'm English or Scottish or Welsh, I totally understand that as well, or Cornish, uh, however you want to put it, or Manx. <laughs> um, but, sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at being Manx. It's a, a, an honourable thing to be. Um, but what I'm, I mean is, you know, I feel that I come from the same culture, broadly speaking, as Billy Connolly, for instance. And I don't, I feel I should be fine to think that I'm proud to see Billy Connolly on the world scene and, you know, uh, and celebrate that. Or, you know, Tom Jones or Keris Matthews or, you know, Charlene Spiteri, whoever it is, I just don't really identify as English. And so I just thought that there would be, as I say, a broad choice of collections of British stories. And I went into shops looking and asking, and I obviously got on the internet. And this was in 2004, um, so I didn't even have the internet at home. But I went, I just looked desperately trying to find a collection of British folktales. And there was the Folio Society, uh, the much revered, rightly revered Catherine Briggs collection, her life's work, which is, you know, obviously, I mean, I haven't referred to it because I'm a very poor man and I'm an author. And the whole point was that it was impossible to buy those for less than 200 quid. And even now you can't get them for less than 50 quid. And I'm broke, so um, I didn't actually. I did my own research, and I've been. I've spent all the time since, in short, collecting folk tales and retelling them, um, because I couldn't find a uh, a book that did what I wanted it to do. Really, uh, and that's absolutely fine. In fact, that's a noble enterprise, isn't it? Because we we talk all the time about the fact that more folk stories, folk tales, folk beliefs and traditions should be collected. So that's absolutely a, a good thing to do. But there's, there's something I think... It's a geographical thing. It's, that's all it is. It's just... I mean, people might... I, I totally understand if anyone from Northern Ireland would feel offended that there are no Irish stories in here. But it's a geographical choice, not a political thing at all. It's just this blob of land and a few little islands around it. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm sure that's perfectly, that's perfectly clear. Um, there's something that I think we do need to clear up just um, 
so that people know exactly where you're coming from here, you describe this book as being the first British folktale collection in over 30 years. Is that genuinely yeah, that, correct? That was the plan. That was always the plan, Mark, you see. Um, but it so happens that there was a collection of British folktales that came out last year. It's a whole kind of a litany of, of near, sort of near misses. I mean, one of the key things with this book, for a start, is... It is very specifically location-based, so every story has a little tourist guide at the end. Um, and in the 15 years that I've been sort of waging this campaign, that was one of the key things, parents especially, the idea that you could read the story at bedtime on a Tuesday, and then on Sunday afternoon, everyone pile in the car and go and visit the real place and look at the hill where the giant is sleeping under and all that. And that's, I wish that that had existed when I was a child that kind of sort of mixture of storytelling and, you know, it's basically a sort of tourist guide to Britain. That was the one of the things that was really exciting about it. So there was nothing like that. And there were a lot of kind of big picture books of, you know, um, oh, I've got it here somewhere. Damn, I should have done my research and remembered the guy's name. But there have been sort of coffee table books along these lines, but the stories in them uh, are just kind of reduced to a paragraph, really. They're not stories with a proper beginning and a middle and an end and there's so many wonderful law books l-o-r-e obviously we're on the folklore podcast for goodness sake <laughs> didn't need to spell that out sorry um but you know i mean the law of the land for instance has been my constant companion for a lot of this but again that's only england and there's a huge difference as you know between law and a story so it's not about you know, it is said that if you, you know, put an apple in a bowl on New Year's Eve in uh, Lancashire, you will see the face of your beloved or something like that. There's a lot of that. And there was a lot of very similar ghost stories. And I love ghost stories. But to me, that's a very different thing to the kind of stories that you'll find in the book, really. Beyond ghost story, but... Um, so many ghost stories, big black ghost dogs, lots of saint stories, which are all quite similar as well. I was just trying to find unique uh, tales from around the land. And it's, you know, I've also been, I've also been quite skeptical about uh, some, uh, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but I have been quite skeptical about some uh, folktale academic ideas of, you know, do we label stories and say, well, that's type A stroke Z or something. Um, the, the hero fights with a spoon or what have you. You know, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's not a very useful thing, but I think it could be quite a, a reductionist. And I was just sort of trying to find a fun way to uh, tell distinct stories. So, I mean, for instance, there are four stories which you could boil down in this book, Mark, to, you know, hero comes to town and kills dragon in an interesting way the end sometimes the hero dies sometimes the hero lives but there are four stories like that there's the uh the the, the uh, oh god so i've got a book right in front of me there's the the worm obviously uh of um the lampton worm but yes there's the lampton worm the biston dragon and i've even just written another one but it was finding the uniqueness of each story and just kind of uh, bringing them all together so each story has its own flavour. Now, the approach that you've taken to collecting these stories um, is to have them collected by somebody else, not not by yourself, and for you to act as the editor. 
and, and for those that have the book or, or who are getting the book, we'll see from the cover, obviously, that this is the collection of Brother Bernard, uh, which, mm-hmm. which has been put together by your good self. Now, why did yeah. you de- why did you decide to take this route and and use Brother Bernard as as a mechanism for putting these stories together? Well, I'll speak on Bernard's behalf, but um, there's all sorts of reasons, really. Uh, One of the key things is, as I say, uh, trying to get this campaign going for 15 years. I think it's all about authorship. I wrote comedy nonfiction. I perform comedy, uh, not for families in in most of the cases. And so I just wanted this book to exist. I thought this is terrible that there has not been, as there hadn't at the point that that this mania took root with me in the, in the last decade, Mark, there, because there hadn't been a British collection, there was a history press doing England, Scotland, Wales, and every single county. You know, I used to love going round, I still do, travelling round, and you go to little local bookshops, and there's local law collected, which is wonderful. But because there hadn't been this, this inclusive British collection, uh, it wasn't, oh, I'm going to write it then. It wasn't a self-aggrandizing thing at all. I didn't. I kind of wanted to hide myself, really, because uh, I just thought what would be best would be to have a whole group of people working together to make the best possible collection. Especially because then it wouldn't. You know, you could have uh, different genders, people from different backgrounds of all kinds, all working together on this book, which is would be a sort of perfect kind of uh, metaphor for Britain in itself. So I spent a long time trying to gather support long before Unbound came along. Um, this book has been sort of been to a, a lot of publishers. But one thing I, I learned as an author for over 10 years, Mark, is that most publishers are terrified of filling a gap on the shelves. And because the British folklore collection, uh, you know, the shelf in any bookshop, there would be the £50 Folio Society, and that was it. Um, they just Publishers just were afraid of trying it. But one person who did give me a lot of support in the early days was Terry Jones from Monty Python, who the book is dedicated to now. And I knew him, obviously, from writing my books as a you know historical comedian and such a lovely, lovely guy. And I sort of interviewed him on stage. So we were quite friendly. And obviously, Terry Jones is also one of the greatest writers of fairy tales of the 20th century, as far as I'm concerned. He's a wonderful writer. And so, to be honest, I was actually looking to collaborate with him. And we went out for dinner, me and Terry and his partner and their uh, young daughter. And he was very excited about the whole idea. And uh, But he was had so much on. What he wanted to do was write a foreword for the book, which I was, you know, I was very, very touched that he would suggest such a thing. But Terry also had form writing under sort of not pseudonyms because the point is it's a bit of fun everyone you can find out who the author is but terry jones and michael palin did a book uh supposedly written by bert feg and he did these sort of squashed fairy books by lady something or other oh they so were wonderful he yes knew about hiding behind this kind of persona but the ultimate point for me was besides the little tribute to terry mark was just because there wasn't at the time, any other option if you wanted a collection of British folk tales, I thought the the less an author was involved, the better. Because we've recently had Neil Gaiman's Norse stories, we've had Stephen Fry's Greek mythology books, and these are great authors. These are big names, and so these retellings. And obviously, the other thing is, Mark, that 
Greek myths and Norse myths, there are hundreds of books to choose from already. So those are very authored books, and quite rightly so. And obviously, Neil Gaiman and Stephen Fry are not to be sniffed at in any way. But I just thought, well, who cares about Jem Roberts's Tales of Britain? Uh, I certainly wouldn't really as a punter. Not that I wouldn't buy it, but it becomes a, too much about the author and their way of retelling things. And although I suppose I do have my own style, um, I just thought it, I wanted to underline the fact that there hasn't been anything in this line for so long that I kind of wanted it to make it from an author's point of view more vanilla, that this is the tales of Britain, these stories of Britain, because otherwise, unless you want to go out and buy separate English, Scottish and Welsh, you won't find an inclusive collection like this. But I should actually just, clear up as well because all through the campaign that has been the case and it's always been very honestly uh, for from the point from the starting point of i want to buy a book for my little baby nephew oh i can't find one have to do it myself um at the time it was called brother bernard's big book of british bedtime ballads if i remember correctly which i do um uh, but um kevin crossley holland i believe did publish a book last year called Between Worlds, which is a collection of British folk tales. So, um, for what it's worth, Tales of Britain was also supposed to be out last year, so we would have been out at the same time. But I do now honourably and humbly concede, and I will never again say um, that this is, you know, the only collection of British folk, folk tales, uh, because in the time that it's taken to actually get this book to exist, Mark, uh, there have been a few other options that, that have come out. And different kinds. Of, there was a book of ballads recently as well, British ballads, which again, has got the distinction of being ballads. And you go back and there are out-of-print books like Robert Nye's collection of British folktales, uh, which is only four stories, uh, including Beowulf. And then there's Alan Garner's as well. And I've got that right here. And it's a beautiful book, but... They are very much Alan Garner's specific selections, and there's hardly any famous stories in there at all. So the the central idea of Tales of Britain, of getting all the most famous stories of Arthur and Robin Hood and Lady Godiva and Macbeth and King Lear and Jack and the Beanstalk and all of these into one collection, um, there's a kind of uh, comprehensive inclusivity that we've always been aiming for, which I do think still kind of allows us to... But, you know, hopefully say that we're, you know, we're flying the flag for 21st century British folklore, I hope. And there's there's two terms that I'd like to pick up on from, from what you've just been talking about. Yeah. Uh, one of those is, is the fact that these are retellings. And the mm. other term is that of inclusivity. Now, yeah. <clears throat> with those two terms in mind, can you talk a little bit about how these tales have been... I, I I don't want to use the word modernised, but but um, no, no, no. made made more accessible for a twenty first century audience. Well, uh, Mark, you certainly obviously you don't need me to tell you the way that stories change according to the audience. Uh, so it's been very much an organic process, really. It was never, you know, there was never any kind of um, social campaigning at, uh, element to this kind of campaign from the start, but it's just arisen out of it. And I've got the perfect example, really, just to explain how this works. And if anyone out there, this is, well, this is a double-edged sword, if there's anyone out there who's thinking, well, I don't want to read a folk tale that's been made politically correct. Well, <laughs> if somebody thinks like that, then I don't really care what they think anyway. But for what it's worth, 
I would have been very, very careful um, as much as possible all the way through to not whitewash anything and to not uh, arbitrarily make things politically correct. And above all, to respect the real roots of every single story, especially as they're you know, based in the landscape and have been for centuries. So the perfect example, really, of being able to tell the same story, but for a new generation and make it work, because some of these just do not work and you cannot tell them to a modern audience, I would say. And that is sad because that means that the story will die besides being written down in a dusty old book somewhere. And the perfect example of that is Long Meg and her daughters uh, up in the Lake District. Uh, Standing Stone, as I'm sure many of your listeners uh, know perfectly well, (laughs) shouting at me right now. But um, as I say, I started doing these little sort of illustrated books for uh, friends and family. And one of my oldest friends told me that he was, uh, his wife was expecting twin daughters. And they live up in Chester, not exactly that close to the Lake District, but a lot closer than I am. And so uh, I was speaking to him in the pub, and I've been working on this for quite a few years at that point. And so I had to do a book for him. And I sort of looked where he lived, looked at the list of stories that I had yet to uh, retell, and I saw Long Meg and her daughter, and I thought, well, that's perfect. That's, you know, that's a nice Sunday drive out for you. And what a great sounding story, Long Meg and her daughters. At some point, I thought it worth retelling. And so I promised my friend that I would retell Long Meg and her daughters. And I got home, and I looked through all the raw research material for that story, and there was absolutely no way that you could tell that story to two young girls born in the 21st century. Because Long Meg and her daughters is ultimately uh, Long Meg and her daughters dance around in in nature, and uh, then God, uh, via Michael Scott, says, Thou shalt turn into stone if you dance on the Lord's Day. And they dance just beyond midnight on Saturday. And we, you, know, uh, you know, there are loads of folk tales like this, but it was God smiting them, turning them to stone for dancing on a Sunday. And that is such a Puritan story that's been distorted clearly since whatever the original story surrounding that stone circle may have been that gave it the name Long Meg. But it was a Puritan uh, story. And I just felt that it was the most disgusting message for, you know, two young girls today. And if you were standing in front of an audience telling that story, you would, should feel rightly embarrassed. But I kind of looked at it and I thought, you could tell exactly the same story, beat for beat. And all I have to do is change the uh, motive around in the middle. So it's no longer God smiting these women down. It's Long Meg herself who decides to escape religious persecution by turning herself and her daughters into stone, which I'm sure is one of the retellings which has been around for a long time anyway, perhaps even the original retelling, I don't know. But it became this story about escape from, if you like, you know, um, patriarchal forces telling them what the hell they could do and what they can't do. Um, I didn't want to make it too um, uh, rebellious, I guess, against religion. But it was, I I thought there was a wonderful story there to be told about kind of emancipation. And it's still exactly the same story, beat for beat, but it's now become a positive message for the 21st century. 
So I hope that basically carries on through all the stories. And it's not changing things arbitrarily. It's telling the same stories, but with a, a modern viewpoint. And as, as you say, some, some stories need that because the, the themes are no longer relevant in a modern society. But there's also the approach... Uh, now, you've written for Disney, as you say, in the past. And one of the arguments against Disney's uh, rendition of some fairy tales or folk tales is that they're overly sanitised uh, naturally yeah. because Disney are, are aiming for a family audience. So if you take a, a story like The Little Mermaid, for example, well, the original is nowhere yeah. near as happy an ending as you're going to find in, in Disney's movie version. Um, uh, uh, and that's absolutely fine. They both have their place. Um, have you had to take that approach as well? Have you sanitised some of these stories, if that's the right word, for, for a family audience because that's what you're aiming at? Well, for what it's worth, um, I do actually feel, I have felt for, for a long time that fairy tales in particular have now for so long been presented as dark, desperately adult things that's become almost the norm. It seems weird now to think of fairy tales and children because post Neil Gaiman and, and a lot of other sort of graphic novels and things, there is nothing surprising about doing intensely adult tellings, retellings of folk tales. But I didn't, as I say, it is not a children's book. So for instance, although it's not erotica, the story of Tamlin is about, you know, um, a, a a woman who meets this guy and she gets pregnant and she has to decide whether she's going to keep the baby and everything. And these are not, um, you know, that's unusual for anything beyond young adults reading. And we've gone so far actually in the book. I mean, I've got to actually say that this is the time to just kind of pull the needle on the record and just say above all, really ultimately the main thing about this whole bookmark is just trying to be fun and have some fun with the stories. It, not all of them. Some of the stories are pure tragedy. But um, I just feel that I was trying to avoid making it too worthy, you know. And also, really, my favorite storytelling, the, my real inspiration, I've already mentioned Terry Jones. Uh, but then there's also the storyteller, Jim Henson, uh, as written by Anthony Minghella, which was full of, you know, wonderful gags and, and bits of uh, playfulness. And above all, Rick Mail and Grim Tales is, was always one of my favourite shows as, uh, you know, growing up. Oh, and also Tony Robinson, when he did Odysseus and uh, all those stories, that enthusiasm that Tony Robinson had. So you mix all those together, and hopefully what you actually end up with is something that can be both serious and very funny at the same time. So, you know, Tristan and Isolde is a tragedy. There's the Kintraw Doonies, a story up, uh, up in Scotland about these fairy people. And there are no jokes, I'm sure, in that story because it's about this mother who basically becomes a banshee and is separated from her children. And it's, it's very sad. And um, I'm sorry, I just kind of interrupted myself. We, what we have in this collection is a little tail key, which some people have been kind enough to say they enjoy. So it's, to give people confidence so they know if they're sharing a story, because again, obviously any lover of folklore knows really these are all about reading the stories out loud, getting the rhythm right, and they're to be performed and shared in person. So some of the stories do have sexual elements. There's obviously loads of violence, but it becomes more cartoon violence, I guess. It's not, 
it's not a desperately dark adult retelling because as i say it's inclusivity it's aiming really at the kind of level of horrible histories harry potter pixar the simpsons it's there's stuff in there for adults lots of jokes that kids won't get but also hopefully you know kids will enjoy it as well yeah, and there's lots of good examples that you've given there. And it's it's really interesting lately to see that um, Jim Henson's The Storyteller is being rebooted, isn't it, um, soon? Yeah. And it, it'll be fascinating to see uh, how they treat that this time around, whether they whether they make any changes in their approach or whether they stick with what, what to my mind, as, as well as yours, was, was a fantastic model the first time around. So you've got a fantastic collection of, of tales here um, and a very extensive collection of stories as well. Um, any particular favourites that you picked up on as you were putting this together over, as you say, a, a long period of time? Well, I, it's been, it, there's been so, some weird criteria, really, to get in. Because, I mean, one of the things, Mark, is just the sheer pleasure that I discovered. As I said, I tried... I, I'll be honest, I contacted J.K. Rowling's people, David Williams, uh, all sorts of authors, thinking that they would be as outraged as I was that there was so little on offer in terms of British folk tales that, uh, you know, everyone would be joining together. And it was only when I suddenly thought, well, you know, if I have to do it all myself, as usual, uh, as with, you know, Unbound Publishing, it was all, you know, I it had to be kind of uh, all just kind of pushed up the hill quite difficultly over the years. Anyway, the, the idea was to try and cover the island as much as possible. So for years, Mark, I've had these maps up on my wall uh, with little kind of, if I was really clever, there would be uh, pins, but instead just sort of squiggles to show where all the stories are. And I wanted everyone in this country, um, I mean, also the story is for people in America and Australia and New Zealand, anyone with British roots to celebrate who don't have the option to do that because they're not Irish or Greek or Norse at the moment. But in this country, I want, I guess, 50 miles. I wanted there to be at least one story within 50 mile radius of everyone that they can go and visit the real place. And that took me to some interesting places. Like Until I embarked on this campaign, it never occurred to me that the three little pigs were from the Isle of Wight, for instance. But uh, research it as much as I could. I couldn't find an older version of the Three Little Pig story than the one which involves the third little pig going to Shanklin Fair with the big bad wolf and uh, rolling down the hill in a butter churn and squishing him, uh, which was the original, the oldest version I could find. So that then, I, I spent ages trying to find an Isle of Wight story, thinking, I, anyway, I remember saying on the Twitter, well, you know, the, the Twitter thing's been going for four years now, and I remember saying, does anyone know any good Isle of Wight folktales? And not getting anywhere, and suddenly, oh my God, the three little pigs are the most world-famous stories. And yes, of course, academics could argue that that story could be traced back to a story about lizards in China in 500 BC or something. Fair enough, but... The Three Little Pigs, the story we have, that is ours. The Three Bears, it was wonderful to untangle that because all my life, obviously, I've known the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and I've never understood it. I remember the, the, the somersaults I was trying in my head as a child, thinking, who are we behind here? Are we supporting the, the blonde housebreaker or the bears or whoever? And when you realize that the oldest version of that story we have, it's a fox, um, 
that suddenly it makes perfect sense. Fox is always the sort of the scamp in all these folk tales. And so you're on the side of the bears and the story makes sense. But that, again, is, you know, the oldest retelling we have is British. So those little light bulb moments were fun. But um, in terms of favourites, um, I should say, as you know, we've also, this is also a live show, which we've been doing now for two or three years. Uh, I am Brother Bernard, and uh, my friend Kate Harbour plays Sister Sal, and we perform them together. And it's very exciting for me, because she was Wendy in Bob the Builder, and uh, is a very uh, successful and beloved voice actress. So um, uh, we have some favourites that we do. Living in Bath, obviously the story of Bladud, the uh, the pig herder who founded Bath, has been retold many times. That's always a favourite. And currently the version of Dick Whittington, with all the kind of panto cliches thrown in for fun, is uh, it's a live favourite at the moment. And have you thought of doing any more with the live shows? You keeping it in the local area at the moment, but are you thinking you're going to expand this uh, in the future off the back of the book? Well, last year I played the Edinburgh Fringe. I did a special event in Abergavenny and one in Tintagel. I swore, I swore that I would play England, Curnow, Wales and Scotland last year, and I did. And I'm basically aiming to do that every year, really, within reason from now on. Because the whole idea is, that we'll do it anywhere or you know I, I also do these shows solo as well and uh, it's all on tales of britain.com it's a whole live section and anyone who wants uh, a, a, a storytelling show it would be lovely to actually go around traveling around the country doing this and literally you know I, I just turned 40 years old mark and so maybe i've got the same amount again on this planet and i would like to spend the rest of my life traveling all around both the world and especially britain telling these stories, taking requests. I'm still retelling the stories. It's so addictive. Once I've found the pleasure of finding all the elements, bringing all the elements, the best elements of these stories together, and then kind of selling all the ideas to a 21st century audience of all ages, that challenge was has become quite addictive. So I'm still doing that. And uh, I'm hoping that the live shows will continue. I mean, this year I've already done... Uh, some events in different schools around the, the local area. Uh, I'm doing Glastonbury, hopefully this year. Uh, that was sort of, that's still last night's conversation, so fingers crossed for that. And I was on Keris Matthews' show on Six Music two or three weeks ago, which people have been nice about my appearance on that, uh, especially because they couldn't see my face, obviously. But um, uh, she had uh, in, then invited me to go up to her festival uh, just over the Welsh border, uh, not far from Chester, The Good Life, so festivals, events, basically, if, you know, as long as travel is covered, I would bust a gut to get to anywhere that wanted stories. So anyone can just go on Tales of Britain and get in touch and email me, bernard.talesofbritain.com or gem at gemroberts.com or just on Twitter. And it would be lovely to do these stories all over the place. And just we can just take requests and do any stories anybody wants. So, uh, so yes, hopefully this is... We've been doing it for three years, and we've had some wonderful gigs, but the problem has always been, Mark, that the book hasn't existed. And it's so difficult to get people to invest in a book which doesn't exist. But now, finally, it's all new and exciting and mm, smells from the factory floor. Uh, now we actually have the books. So hopefully this is almost you know, uh, a whole new beginning for Tales of Britain Live. Yeah, and let's hope it continues that way because, after all, at the end of the day, you know, the origins of storytelling are are as a fireside tradition, as an oral tradition. That that is absolutely the way 
that these things should be presented, isn't it? So let's hope it does go from strength to strength in that way. Well, look, when you come down to the southwest and do Devon and Cornwall, you know where I am. Mm. Let's link up oh, with please, the yeah. let's link up with the podcast. You tell the stories, and then I'll come and tell the background behind them, and then you can have a joint live experience. There you go. Oh, fantastic! Yes, well, yes. Just let, let me know when the when the party starts. Sir. <laughs> Now you said at the beginning as well that you are working on something else now. So um, so let's just finish off by by asking a little bit about what the next project is for you now. Oh well, um, as I say, I, I can't stop writing Tales of Britain stories. So this won't, you know, this will not be the end of Tales of Britain. Uh, hopefully, we're gonna, this is going to do well, and so we'll lead on to beautifully illustrated sort of deluxe editions with all the extra stories, and then maybe Tales of Ireland, Tales of Europe. If people like my style, I mean, I'm not, you know, this is a departure for me, as you know, from, from nonfiction. So if people like my style, then I'd love to keep on doing this in this whole area. And there's even more exciting ideas, which I'd probably better keep my gob shut about for now, because there's no doubt lots of clever people out there listening. <laughs> um, but I'll tell you specifically what I'm uh, writing right now, all this year. I'm back on the comedy history uh, 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 wagon, if you like. And this is also a book I've been trying to get off the ground for 10 years now, and it's called Fab Fools. It's the story of the Beatles and comedy, which has never been told, for all that there are far too many books on the Beatles. Uh, it's a whole side of the Beatles that nobody has ever really looked at, all their different connections with comedians themselves as comedy performers, and then the Ruttles and all sorts of different things. So, as a you know, the Beatles are religion to me, so this is a, a very uh, interesting project. I think it might be my best, my best non-fiction so far, but a, a very different... Yeah, you know, Beatles story is a very different tale of Britain, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, we'll certainly look forward to seeing how that one develops. Uh, just finish off by letting people know, most importantly, after uh, hopefully this has whetted their appetite, where you would like them to go in order to pick up a copy of the book and also where they should go to find out more about you and your other work. Ah, well, uh, it's very simply, probably the website's the best, is talesofbritain.com and jemroberts.com, and similarly, sort of the same thing on Twitter. It, I was thinking the other day, actually, Twitter comes in for a lot of stick, but when you think about it, you know, uh, for all that there are, you set up websites and emails and everything, ultimately, when you set up Twitter, people can contact you, and, you know, you are available to anyone. So, t you know, Twitter is probably the best way of grabbing my attention. It's a very valuable tool, isn't it? And in fact, it is also a very valuable and valid way in which uh, stories and folklore spread through through social media. Um, something we'll be looking at in a future episode of the podcast, actually, is looking at this uh, kind of digital folklore aspect. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, certainly this book would never have happened without the wonderful community out there, all, all the lovely uh, Folklore Thursday people and uh, God Checker, and indeed yourself, having this wonderful chat with you. It's all come from that whole community on Twitter. So uh, hopefully, you know, that long may it last. Absolutely, it has. So yes, do follow follow Gem on Twitter uh, and Tales of Britain um, and, and obviously the Folklore Podcast as well. And let's tie all this together. Oh, <laughs> Gem, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast uh, and good luck with the rest of your writing this year. Thank you so much, Mark. And Brother Bernard, thanks you too. My thanks to Gem for joining me to discuss Tales of Britain. 
Links to Gem's websites can be found on the guests page of the Folklore Podcast website as normal. And I hope that many of you will be able to get hold of a copy of what is an extremely worthwhile and enjoyable book. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.